here's the thing, Jeff. I know we need some sort of pre-credits thing, mm-hmm. but we can't these issues so much. Uh, <laughs> like, shit, let's just get through it. Yeah. Just... Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I know. Hello, whatnots. Welcome to Baxter Building episode 22, or the one where Jeff and I get kind of sad about comics. <laughs> uh, I'm Graham McMillan. I'm one of your two co-hosts. And with me is the guy I've already identified as Jeff, but he wants to call himself... Jeff Lester, Emperor of Mongo. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. That's where you went with all these comics? We're, we're doing <laughs> To a something... different franchise entirely. Exactly. We're doing something different this time. Uh, well, as we told you last time, we're doing the giant size issues and the annuals that we have not done up until now. Yeah. Because we've just hit issue 200 in the regular series in the last episode. But it turns out that that leaves us with four giant size issues and three annuals that yeah. we have to catch up on. Basically, stretching... yeah, seven years or something. Yes, like 74 through 78. Oh, it's God. Seven, seven comics. Seven giant size comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, although giant size really just means double size for the yeah. purposes. Yeah. They are giant size. What the, the official title is giant size superstars featuring the Fantastic Four. Number one. Issue, issue one, which then becomes giant size Fantastic Four with issue two. Giant size Fantastic Four is issues two, three, and four. There was a five and six of that series, but they're both reprint issues, so we're not going to be covering them. Then FF Annual 11, 12, and 13. The last Fantastic Four annual we covered, I think, was issue five, but six, seven, eight, nine, and ten were all reprints. Yes. Now you're very confused. Just take a <laughs> look. We're going to be talking about some shit comics. That's right. That's all you need to know. Uh, yeah. Except it's fair to say, for comics that last, like, go through a five-year period, these are some bad comics, right? Well... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Let's let, let's some, not mince words. There's a lot of fun in there, right? And there's there's actually things I like in almost every issue. That is true. There's only but, one comic that I thought was just oh, an outright sinker. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Oh. I I I know which one I think is an outright sinker, yeah. and I'm curious if it's the same comic. I bet I'm almost betting it's going to be. Except you always prove me wrong, so we we will see. Place oh now, place now, now you just got now you just got to tell me what it is. What? No, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait till we uh, get to it. So. I'll tell you this, my chef. It's not one of the giant size FF issues. Really? Oh, yeah, my God. I, uh. thought you, I thought I knew where you were going. Yeah. But no, it's, it's that's where annuals for me. See, okay, that's interesting. Because I'm, well, wait a minute. Hold on. There's the, the annuals that we read were 11, 12, and 13. 12, ugh. and but what what happens in 13? 12, 12 is also bad. Well, we'll get there, Jeff. Oh, that was fine. All right, it's, it's so the, anyway. It's the Bill Mantlo Salbashima issue. Oh, right. Remember? No. <laughs> Mole man, Jeff. Mole man. Yeah, I do know. I do know the one that you're talking about now. That's right. I totally blocked. I totally was. I'm like, I remember That's the credits, but I'm like. Mm. I was making notes about these this morning, mm-hmm. uh, and I honestly had entirely blanked out two of them yeah 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where I was like, oh, that's right, that exists. It was just that bad. Yeah, so I, I don't know. You know, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and go say, limb, yeah. yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the issues that we're t- that we are tackling, that we're going to talk about, as Graham says, like each one of them have like sort of their moments or something that you can appreciate or like a little thing that's like, Oh yeah. But, but ultimately so fall so flat. And what I'm fascinated by my theory is, is that the fans, the FF are kind of a, thanks to the miracle of, of Kirby and Lee, a strangely organic creation. And when you get people who start trying to replicate that formula uh part of the problem i think is is that if you stress one element too much among above any of the others it suddenly creates something that's kind of not quite as palatable not nearly as palatable you know it's funny you go to lean kirby because especially the giant size ff issues and, and particularly two and three mm. feel very much like their attempts to recapture the magic, as yeah. the kids say, yeah. or at least retread plot points yeah. to, to varying degrees of success, yeah. shall we say. Right, right. I... Uh, shall, we just, shall we just dive Wait, in? Let's just jump in. Let's just start with Giant Size Superstars number one. Which is The Mind of the Monster by Jerry Conway and Rich Buckler with Joe Sinnott inking. That's right. The monster, spoilers, is the Hulk. Or is it? <laughs> because the plot of this issue is that the Hulk, uh, or rather Bruce Banner, finds himself in, in Manhattan and goes to Fantastic Four to try and cure himself. Mm-hmm. Only Ben Grimm is home, however. And with in a plot that makes absolutely no sense other than it's a MacGuffin, Ben and Bruce Banner decide that they kind of know what one of Reed's machines do. Yes. And and they're going to try and, and work it together. The machine will, it is believed, cure both of them because the frequency of Ben's cosmic ray radiation and the Hulk's gamma radiation will somehow cancel each other out. Spoilers, it doesn't work because... I'm not entirely sure why it doesn't work. Definitely, Bruce transforms into the Hulk mid-process. But I'm not sure if that's why it doesn't work, or that just happens and it doesn't work. Whatever the reason, the two of them swap minds. And so Ben is in charge of the Hulk's body, whereas the Hulk, not Bruce Banner, is in charge of the Thing's body. Guess what, everyone? There's a fight. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fight the uh, the likes of which we've never seen because uh, the... Hulk is rampaging in Ben Grimm's body, and Ben Grimm is actually in the Hulk's body. One of the things I think is kind of interesting about the story, and by interesting, I mean not really that interesting, is that you swap... Well, I think there's kind of the natural assumption is going to be once you put Ben Grimm in the Hulk's body, it's going to more or less be game over. Like, the Hulk is widely believed to be stronger and in their previous battles uh, has been yes Yes. ben has has managed to survive by more or less having hit more wits about him and being more of a strategic uh, strategic thinker or fighter or grappler or whatever and yet what happens here is almost exactly the opposite of what you would expect in that 
the Hulk in the body, in Ben Grimm's body, basically um, beats the crap out of Ben Grimm as the Hulk. Uh, there's a lot in this issue that seems to make it seem uh, that the reason why that keeps happening is that um, Ben in, in the Hulk's body is having trouble actually being able to like maneuver. Like his, he's, he keeps complaining that his body is like too slow or too fast or overreacts or underreacts. And additionally, because this is from the era of where Thundra kept popping up, Thundra keeps popping up to protect Which the thing. Which I actually love. Yeah, that, I, that actually, part is great. I kind of forgotten about Thundra altogether, to be perfectly honest with you. And I love that she basically pops up a couple of times as a spoiler. Mm -hmm. Just to mm -hmm. be like, I don't know why you're beating up on the thing, but stop yeah. it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So there's, there's something that... Uh, I, I, it's a disposable issue, but I find it sort of among... it, Although not my favorite uh, of these not great bag of issues, I at least sort of found it maybe among the least objectionable. If only because, as you know, I am, uh, and listeners to the podcast know, I am very much kind of a sucker for Rich Buckler when he decides to be, um, bite so heavily from oh, Kirby's style. It's, it's, I was, I'm glad you brought that up because it's not just that he's biting from Kirby's style. When the thing shows up, the thing is Herb Trimpey. You know, it's funny. It, th that's funny because I'm like, it's, yeah, there's, there's look, definitely... Look, look at the second page of this comic. Mm -hmm. And the, especially panels three, four, and five. That's not Kirby. Or, yeah. or, or even the, the transformation on page three mm -hmm. and panel mm -hmm. two there. That feels very Herb Trimpey to me. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I could, I, I could see it. It's, how do I put it? I feel like there's definitely a variety of influences in there. Cause, but cause it is. His, his FF is amazingly Kirby in this issue. I mean, yeah. more Kirby than it is in the regular series when he appears, which I, I love. I feel like he's literally like, okay, you guys, I can ape lots of people in the same comic. Totally. Well, I mean, look at the page. You mentioned the transformation of, of, of the Hulk back into Banner on page three. This, the panel right below it, where basically Bruce Banner wakes up singing as far as the body language it, it is, is concerned. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. I, and I do love that. And the fact that, that Puny Banner is drawn as... That's really just fucking muscular. Absurdly buff in this. It's hilarious that that guy is supposed to be the milksop when he's like, CrossFit is all shit, so... Uh, yeah, like I said, I really, the pastiche works for me in, in it. Uh, I don't, I know it's, it's, it is the opposite of a good comic. Like I said, <laughs> I like the appearance of Thundras, you know. I'm, I'm actually not sure it's the opposite of a good comic. If you think about the fact that it's called Giant Size Superstars, I think it does exactly what you want to in the tin. I think it literally think gives it you two superheroes fighting each other in a quote-unquote epic story, which is only, what, 24 pages? I mean, it's, Yeah, they, again, it's that classic thing. They, I, I think, like, as we will look at with Giant Size FF number two and three, it was padded with a reprint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, all the Giant Size books are like, Giant Size, 68 pages! And it's really yeah. like, you know, at most you get like a 40-page lead and everything else is backups. But, exactly. Um, but no, Giant Size Superstar seems... 
seems to do exactly what it's supposed to to me, which is, hey, it's your favorite characters together. Like, it's mm-hmm. essentially like a, a, a giant size Marvel 2 in one issue. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I, I that's, mean, the, that's fine. Yeah, I, it, it's true. I guess I'm just saying that one of the things that struck me is, is there is that Kirby Lee thing versus the Hulk two-parter where, of course, at one point the thing jumps in a motorboat. Oh, it's, it's it, I, I, I was actually rereading all the, the Stan Lee thing Hulks yesterday mm, because really? well, Stan Lee came out and said in, on a, an interview, oh, the Hulk is like the Hulk is always going to win in a fight between the thing and the Hulk. He's the strongest one there is. And so this was like a, a story. And I was like, but it's not a story. Like every single time Stan Lee has written the thing versus the Hulk, the Hulk mm-hmm. always wins. Yeah. Like in every single story, even if it's like he just knocks the thing out and runs away. Mm-hmm. Hulk mm-hmm. always wins, and so you have yeah. like in, in FF25, the one you're talking about, the Hulk actually beats Ben because 25 mm-hmm. ends with Ben being like, "I've been beaten. This has never happened before." Yeah, yeah, no, it, it is. It's one of those things that yeah, he seems he seems very aware of it. Anyway, so yes, that I remember as being. Um, th- I mean, this is this comic is one of those that you know is from the Jeff Lester childhood collection. So it's like I remember reading this as a kid, and you know, liking it fine. It really did sort of do the trick. And I will say that compared to Giant Size FF number two, which I had and I remember reading a lot, uh, I feel that Giant Size F- this Giant Size Superstars issue more or less holds up for the very low 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 um bar that exactly. it has to clear I, I, you know I, it is a fairly low bar but it's like i said it does what it, it's supposed to yeah and, and so it's completely successful on its own terms uh yeah. let's talk about giant size ff number two sure. because that doesn't right <laughs> you know i have to say the thing okay the the i have a huge uh, debt of gratitude that I owe to Giant Size Fantastic Four number two. Cataclysm, it is, by the way, is what it's called. Which, which I definitely owe to, uh, you know, sort of aiding in us um, reading and talking on, on the Baxter building because I'm 95% sure that uh, Giant Size FF number two is my first exposure to that first appearance of Red Ghost and the Super Apes and the Watcher, FF number 12, which is a terrific episode, you know, because it's the backup story. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. So it's probably where I first read it. And and what was funny was flipping through the rest of this, I'm like, right, I really remember this book. Like, I remember this cover. There's got to be more to it than this. And then I'm flipping through it, and I'm like, holy fucking christ this is and then when i get to the when i got to the end because spoilers everyone graham uh because this was not available on marvel unlimited so if you're looking for it in frustration right now uh, a friend was able to lend him a cbr so looking through the cbr of this i was just like oh my god why 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 and then i got to the space ghost stuff and i'm like oh right because the space ghost stuff is is of course great it's like the sort of foreshadowing of the stuff that um that you know the the the, the greatness of the ff is era is very much um 
foreshadowed, I think, in that issue. I, I just love it. Here, though, ooh, cataclysm, man, Jeff, ooh, cataclysm. cataclysm. Uh, yeah, let's Cohen, stick to cataclysm. And Chick Stolen are the ones responsible. I yes, responsible. I have to say that uh, between this. The Giant Size Superstar, uh, part of the reason why Giant Size Superstar works is is that you kind of get the idea that Jerry Conway cannot actually craft anything more complicated than (laughs) let's get (laughs) together and fight. fight. Yeah, I mean, this story, Cataclysm, uh, for those in the know, basically the FF are in space. They are coming back to Cape Canaveral after testing out this uh, a shuttlecraft for NASA. They end up crash landing because, of course, they're the FF and that's what they do best. And they have crash landed on, uh, even though it is the modern day world of 1970-whatever. Uh, 1974, Jeff. The civilization I was born. Uh, it is... It has been reduced to a, a realm where civilization has existed. Cavemen are still running around and smacking people with axes. And the Watcher shows up in his very Watcher-like way, very pre-Englehart trial of Captain uh, trial of the Watcher, to uh, basically blab on and on, and t- not only not only tell the FF what is going on, but conveniently transport the FF to every single fucking place they need to be in order for them to do well, what needs to well, be done. hang on. You say every single fucking place, like, there's more than two. And of those two, only one actually matters, which is my favorite thing about this story. That's not true. It's my second favorite thing about this story. So, Reed and Johnny are sent back to meet George Washington and right. save George Washington. Yeah. However, Ben and Medusa, because this is the Medusa era of Fantastic Four, uh, are sent back to the 1920s where they meet the guy who has actually tra- changed history. So if history mm-hmm. was changed in the 20s, what is the George Washington thing all about? Oh, he he originally went back Really, to, though? Yeah, but he's no, bouncing no, around in time. I, I know, but still, he was batting around in time, really? Like, did you not just think it was Jerry Conway being like, uh... Okay, I've got to split the team up because I've got 40 pages to play with. Sure, George Washington. That works out. It, it actually makes no sense. The, the, uh, my, dude, none of this my story. Favorite, the, well, this... My favorite thing about the story, however, is that yes. the person who's gone back in time is Willie Lumpkin, who accidentally yeah. sent a time machine off when he was delivering mail. I genuinely yeah. love that. I genuinely, yeah. genuinely think that's both cute and also very funny. And, and I think I didn't check and meant to was, is this the first time Willie Lumpkin had appeared in a long time? Because I think it is. I think it is the first time in a real long... That's the other thing. Because this is, again, another book that I had as a kid and read a lot, I remember thinking Willie Lumpkin was way more central to the FF mythos than he sort of has ended up being based on our reading of, well, you know, that, 200 issues of the That's FF. just it. When you get to... When you come into a, a franchise that has had such a long life, at, after a certain point, you're getting like the cover version of the cover version of the cover version. Mm-hmm. So for me, Willie Lumpkin is very important because everyone drags Willie Lumpkin out every now and again to go, look, my ears wiggle. And then you read the original <laughs> comics and you're like, Willie Lumpkin appears like once. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, Willie Lumpkin is really not important. <laughs> Yeah. How did really... Ed, like the greatest trick the devil ever performed was convincing people that Willie Lumpkin had a purpose. 
Right. Well, I mean, how do I put it? I think because he does have a purpose. I, one of the, 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 I'm like, what's amazing is the devil was able to convince us that Willie Lumpkin served a purpose and yet still somehow failed to convince us that that stupid landlord who's appeared way more in the FF, uh, Collins or whatever, has ever served any purpose whatsoever. Like, you know, he keeps showing up and Willie Lumpkin has barely appeared and everyone's like, Hey, Willie Lumpkin, let's give him a parade. So and what every you're time saying that is the ear wiggling thing really counts. It's huge. It's huge. You can't, you just can't undercut it. You know, I think the part of the problem with uh, Giant Size FF number two is, is that it is a perfectly charming idea for a Fantastic Four coloring book. It's just when you actually put it into comic book format and, and there's no crayons to do i mean it's there's something that's just very charming about having them meet george washington and george washington tell them like oh you seem like honorable men and i'm proud to know you and they're like ah, oh, we're so honored so like, so let's talk about this for a second because sure. in theory giant size ff number two is great like right. the idea that the FF are the only people who know that time has changed and have to go back and change and have to go back and fix time is a great yeah. idea. The fact yep. that it includes them meeting George Washington is a great idea. And the George Washington scene is actually super cute. And also the Bushima Chickstone art in that sequence yeah. in particular is great. In particular, you can totally see again it's that thing where Basima's like, Oh, I've been waiting to draw some of this shit. Like he's like, Oh, great. Horses, breeches. You know, tricorn hats, like it's all stuff that he's really into in a way that uh, his, the his epic showdown. Yeah, oh, his, yeah Washington his Washington in particular is so yeah. great. You're like, I fucking want to read a John B. Samuel George Washington book. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because he really does make it. It's like it is perfect comic book characterization. Like, you know who that guy is at first glance. And he actually conveys in his body posture yeah, he's and a great his face, acting he's great acting yeah basima just you know really busts it out for it which is wonderful uh and then but by the time that you know you have the ff fight the villain of the piece which is basically a, a, a jewelry store counter of a man um ugh. Oh god. Anyway, but that okay, so that's just it. It you you have you then have Ben and Medusa go back to the 20s and get Willie Lumpkin. And again, it's a super charming idea. The Willie Lumpkin yeah. accidentally changed the, the past and also doesn't really quite seem to understand what what is happening, but seems very bemused about it all. Yeah. It's again yeah, yeah, yeah. a really charming idea and really works. The issue as a whole does not in the slightest yeah. Maybe it is the next chapter, as you say, where, where uh, after saving George Washington and after saving Willie, they end up in Salvador Dali land to meet the villain Tempus. Mm -hmm. I'm the master of the world in which you now exist, who basically is like, I was doing it all along afterwards. It kind of, it's a much better idea when Willie is done by mistake. Yes. To then introduce this is the something, villain yeah. Yeah. is then like, what? No, yeah. that's, that's dumb. But also, yeah. he's the most generic villain, and the, the, Completely. the fight scene is is just really badly done. That yeah. For some reason, he has an entirely pointless and out-of-nowhere limit on his powers that he can only fight two people at once. Yes. Which, yeah. you know, there's a Fantastic Four, you guys. I wonder how this is going to go. 
Yeah. It, it's it, that last chapter manages to just doom the comic. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and before, I mean, as much as I enjoyed the other stuff, let's keep in mind that, and I think this is important, is unlike other chapters, you know, because the first two thirds of this fall into sort of that classic Silver Age, split up the team, give them separate chapters. And, well, and it feels, Silver Age, it goes all the way back to Golden Age with the JSA yeah, stories, right? But it feels very like classic Lee Kirby, especially early Lee Kirby to me. Oh, yeah, very, very Lee Kirby. And again, that, that is one of those, because it, it's got the time travel, you've got Ben, Circle almost figures. like the Bluebeard yeah. thing, yeah, you know, turning back into a per human and then losing his humanity and, you know, all that woes me shit. But, but there's no threats to them, you know what I mean? Like, it really is those two chapters where they go back in time, there's lots of uh, exclaiming going on, but that is about as stressful as it gets. There is no threat presented to Reed and Johnny at any point in their chapter with George Washington at all. And it pretty much it shows, you know, and similarly, even though Ben is, is depowered, like Medusa isn't. And so again, there's almost also, nothing. Why is Ben depowered? Like it makes us, right. no one else gets depowered. And why does it change back? Boo. No reason. Yeah. Boo? Exactly. Yeah. But, exactly. But, but I still, I still would have accepted all of that as like a, it's a fine annual, yeah. and then you get Tempest, and you're like, oh, this this chapter does not need to be here for anything other than filler. No. Yeah. No. Well, filler in the sense that it's like, okay, this is where the biggest threat comes. But the fact is, Basima's like, I don't give a shit. Jerry Conway's like. I don't give a shit. And and there's really just levels of explanation that are barely made whatsoever. So it's just a it's 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 a crap comic. It's the flip but it was side so of close, Giant it was so close to being a good comic. Yeah, it they, could they, have been they good. They managed if, to fuck themselves up with that last chapter really yeah. really badly because yeah. up until that point it was fun. It was throwaway. It was light as shit. Mm -hmm. But really genuinely a fun comic and then yeah. that last chapter leaves such a bad taste in the mouth yeah. that you're like okay then well fine okay they defeat the villain uh, sure and and again it gets wrapped up like the, the last chapter definitely feels like too much by the fact that it gets wrapped up like in a page Yes. Where it's basically like, oh, Tempest is done. Okay. Uh, and then Watch Show Company's like, okay, uh, Willie's fine. And uh, now you guys are okay. Mm -hmm. And history saved. Yep. The end. The end. Yeah. Super rushed, which, which sort of emphasizes the why did we have all this Tempest shit again? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. No, it really is. It's, it's one of those things that, oh. although that being said, so yes, Giant Size FF number two, it's a shame. But there are bits that I find fun or charming exactly, or, again, exactly. Basima's acting. Yeah. When you get to Giant Size, F well, and on top of it, that Space Ghost story, uh, Space Ghost, um, Red Ghost and the Super <laughs> I feel like that's the first time you've made that mistake either. Which yeah, I love, probably. I love that you continually thinking Space Ghost. That would be the best. I'm like, well, you know, he does have an ape companion. So uh, FF, Giant Size Fantastic Four number three, to me, is Jeff, the what, loser. That is the one the that I was going to pick. Where lurks death? Ride the four horsemen. Where lurks earth? Ellipses. Page turn. 
Yeah, right, double page spread. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. also it starts with um, you're looking at what is doing in the comic, Mike Biz, as a symbolic splash page. It shows the Fantastic <laughs> Four lying broken and defeated across the world. They've sworn to protect, while looming over them is the quartet of baddies who caused the whole McGill in the first place. This is called a symbolic splash page because a scene such as this obviously could not happen, right? Wrong. And, dear dear and... Jerry Conway and Marv Wolfman. This does not actually happen in the comic. Exactly. Part is a symbolic splash. It is a symbolic splash. You cannot actually have the FF the size of the entire planet Earth and lying on it. There's well, no point. Coots. It's just that it doesn't happen in the story. Well, yeah. I don't know how they would necessarily describe it. But yeah, no. I- agreed. It does not happen in the story. It's impossible to happen. Yeah. You don't get to start your story saying, this is not symbolic. And then yeah. fail to show this in the comic. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I'll be honest, Jeff. You're right. FF number, uh, says FF number three is I, I, an amazing stinker. It is yeah. the most hilariously pretentious comic I think you oh, or I have ever read. My God. It really is that classic, like, who the hell? And again, sort of like I said, that idea that the FF is sort of this organic mixture it's like if you lean to like giant size superstars number one leans too heavy on like the Kirby bash him up without anything else really going on. Issue two is a little bit more of like early Lee Kirby kind of you know a little too much of the charm but with nothing else kind of going on there or worse the attempt to change it into a, a different gear for that final Tempest showdown which is supposed to be dramatic is like nothing. Giant size FF number three is in this in this sense the worst idea ever conceived in that Jerry Conway and apparently Marvel men thought, what if we could create an issue that was dedicated to nothing but four different pretentious speeches by the FF about the nature of man and humanity. It, it, it's really the Stan Lee-ness of it yeah. all, given a whole new horrifying form. Yeah. It's yeah. what if the Silver Surfer was writing a Fantastic Four comic? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it reminds me, the Four Horsemen issue actually does strike me as a follow-up to the Gabriel uh, Skywalker story. Oh, I, 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 I totally could see that. It's, yeah. it's just it. It's horrible. So as the title might suggest, the Fantastic Four have to deal with the Four Horsemen, who are yes. aliens. Yeah. Uh, aliens who were here in the past at some point and have mm-hmm. uh, prepared for all this to happen and get involved in humanity's affairs to subjugate us and take over the world. Yeah. There are numerous problems with this, not least of all the fact that apparently these all-powerful aliens who can do terrible things, can be defeated just by a speech in almost every case, or just by someone standing up to <laughs> and saying, nope. So a pestilence, yeah. for example. Chapter one, there shall come pestilence. Pestilence shows up and has has some monsters that the thing clobbers, then has a showdown with the Fantastic Four, where he is defeated by the thing punching him. Yeah. But because the thing is punching him, then his whole self-belief is destroyed, and that's why he he disappears in a, a puff of smoke. Yeah. This, this story is actually so awful that that is the first actual explanation of his defeat. And then it's so... it 
like I Conway and Wolfman that, have to come up the with the offensive chapter because chapter two and Marshall Wash, Tinkerland was staggeringly oh, offensive. Oh, it's it, yes, absolutely. Uh, but there's just there. What struck me really is the fact that there's one explanation by Reed Richards real early on for why they defeat pestilence, and then he has keeps having this yeah, theory he, that he goes on throughout. Yeah. And then at the end, he's like, "Oh no, it was a completely different thing that makes." literally no sense like the first explanation as to why ben defeated pestilence where essentially by resisting him he more or less becomes a human antibody for yes, him because I'm like, pestilence is a disease jeff do you get it yeah i would and this is it i'm like okay this at least works at yeah, it's, like it's um, terrible but it kind of makes sense it sort of does it's kind of like okay that's moronic but but it works uh, but then, holy shit! Oh so my I, god! I just want to. I I read the the opening narration for the issue. I want to read the opening narration for chapter two because this was when I was like, "What the fuck am I reading?" Yeah. Africa. Once it was called the Dark Continent. Once it was ruled by a handful of foreign oppressors who held sway over the multitude of blacks living and sweating in this land of their birth. No more. The days of subjugation are over. The days of supposed inferiors obeying the mindless laws of their equally mindless masters are finished. Africa, a study of a continent in turmoil. Holy yeah. shit. You know. Even in 1974, holy shit. Oh, God. I mean, honestly, it, at least they have it that then, Africa then, is a continent, uh, which know, is but, a but step then, above then stuff that we've see seen. The quote-unquote blacks fighting against their, their oppressors. Yeah. It's just, I have to put images of this in the show notes because, Jeff. <laughs> it is, it is racist as hell. It is, oh everything about it is disturbing and really, uh, it's just. Spoilers it's everyone. Just, the, the, again, I'm going to say blacks because I love that. So the, the, the narration puts it. Um, yeah. Are is they're not even being controlled; they're being manipulated by war, who of course mm -hmm. are pestilence, um, because it's not that their cause is righteous or anything. <laughs> they're yeah. being manipulated, and they just want to destroy the honkies. It's yeah. just holy. I mean, really, holy motherfucking shit! In what world did this seem like a good idea? Yeah. Like, yeah. No. Seriously. Oh. It's terrible. Yeah. It well, and this is it. This is this issue is. I think I've talked before about the uh, the influence of Star Trek syndrome on on later era FF. Oh, sure, sure. And and that is here in full effect. Yeah, but Star the, Trek the, I, would never actually do it. Like Star Trek would do it equally unsubtly, but they would at least go call it like Africlon or something, and it's <laughs> alien planet. Do you know what I mean? There's well, something they, infinitely more offensive for me. Sure. It's once like, you actually put actually it on Africa. Africa, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it 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 is. It is a complete, perhaps unsurprising. It is such a classic. Guys who are completely unaware of how deeply invested in sort of the white patriarchal power structure that they are, I like know. that. It's that so you bad. just have like at best the most mixed messagey chapter and just really is. Oh, okay. But Graham, since you got to read uh, the opening, I want to read the closing where uh, basically the human torch defeats war by, as far as I can tell, setting his horse on fire, which kind of sucks. Uh, no, no, he, he blows up the horse. 
it, it uh, okay that just again it just is kind of fucked up war neither side can ever hope to win in war which what there are no rights no wrongs only senseless slaughter and all for the sake of some worthless prize i'm like okay i am the biggest peacenik hippie in the world and none of that is technically true at all you know what's really tempting i kind of want you to read it and for me to join in on the bolded words (laughs) oh that would be great like like kind of a run dmc kind of thing war some fight it for pride others for land or for power there we go yeah we need we need to work on it a little bit run gmc is not coming together anytime soon i'm afraid War. The victor basks in its glory until his prize is plucked by some mightier hand. War. It goes on and on and on, and all the pity for it. I mean, come on. This is years. War. What is it good for? Uh huh. Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely. You know? Uh, But also, I thought you were going to go for the end of that chapter. Observe the end of war. It is a time for reflection and for two struggling armies to talk of peace. But only for now, alas, only for the present. Soon there will be time for another battle, another struggle, war. It goes on and on and on. And all the pity for it. And all the pity for it. Yeah, there you go. The reprise. Meanwhile, it's just this thing of like, who? why are there sad Asian people at the bottom of that panel? You know? Like, it's just clearly like, who are those people supposed oh, to be? Oh, can we start with like, this is supposed to be Africa and, like, the basically the white imperialist uh, oppressors are being uh, rebels against, right? That's supposedly the story, but, but, but then yeah, suddenly... They, they, they are basically the victims in this whole <laughs> chapter. Right, right. No, it's, it's, it's the whole... The, the, every step of this is so weird and wrong, but part of me is still this the idea of, like, where's... Why did suddenly, where did these three Asian guys show up? And they're like, oh, no, this is terrible. Like, where were you guys? Uh, you know, they were, the, they were also we should say that war is defeated by having his helmet uh, pulled off. And he basically is like, ha, you're all war. You're war. You're war. You're war. I've turned into smoke. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And and they're like, he's gone. Vanished just as Pestilence did. Why? Why? And believe me, the shock ending should actually have Johnny being like, why? Like, why? Like, you know, really, no... why? <laughs> yeah, seriously. This makes no sense. Chapter three, and the children shall hunger. Jeff, do you want to do all the opening narration for this, which is almost as bad? Cambodia. The Americans have gone, yet the combat continues. Vietnamese brother against Vietnamese brother. Family against family. And here in Cambodia, the effects of a neighboring war are felt deeply indeed. For it is through these patties of rice that soldiers march. It is through these sparse lands of grain that armies battle. Cambodia, the side effects of war, the leftovers of violence. I have to say, I really wish that a punk band back in 78 had called itself the leftovers of violence. Also, I love the leftover of violence. It's all in bold. Oh, yeah. Cambodia, no, no, no. the side effects of war, the leftovers of violence. It's totally, you know, fucking Marv Wolfman was talking to the letterer and like, get that shit in bold. 
nobody wants that is my leaves of grass no <laughs> one can miss this it's so the the reeds and the thing fly to cambodia to uh meet you know what this chapter disturbed the shit out of me too by the way because it actually is crazy ass force feeding which is just well, it's, it's it's just nuts so what's going on is that the cambodians cannot see that there is food and so they think they're being starved because they have been hypnotized so they literally cannot see the food that's in front of them yeah okay this brings the, the wonderful panel where the the man faints in front of reed and reed says he's fainted from hunger in the midst of a rice paddy this is madness ben total insanity it's just amazing uh, but then what does Reed do Reed literally slams his head into a bowl yes. of rice yeah, that's the, not an the... exaggeration Reed literally slams his head into a bowl of rice yeah yeah he he. it, it is uh, first off there, maybe there's some sort of something subtextually weird going on here because well there definitely is but this is this is the next chapter where americans uh, where white people show up and fix the problems that other people seem to have fallen prey to basically by doing like horrible bullshit stuff like force feeding this one guy so there's a great sequence too on the next page and by great i mean terrible where it is very very clear that ben is jumped by the weird pointy-eared um swimsuit trunked uh weirdos that were also pestilences henchmen in the first chapter they're jumping on thing as uh and and reed says ben don't hurt these men and it totally they totally make it sound as if these are the villagers that are jumping well they, it, they not only make it sound Famine actually explicitly says it. He calls yeah, them he his mindless mountain of hunger-crazed peasants. Yes, there we go. Thank you. I'm like, where can I find the phrase? And it was just... Mindless that. mountain of hunger-crazed peasants. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and they're clearly... They're also clearly... They're clearly not! The alien dudes. Yeah. They, like, they're, they're even colored that way. Yeah. And nobody got this memo except Marv Wolfman, who was kind of like, I'll make this work. It does not work. And then, once again, you know, I'm starting to think it actually would have been pretty cool if Reed had figured out that the secret was that it's the horses that are the actual intelligent creatures you have to defeat, and that's what happened. But no, once again, famine gets stopped because, uh, essentially, Mr. Fantastic Dutch ovens him with yeah, himself. exactly. So, what, what is even actually happening there? Because yeah. Reed's seems to wrap himself around famine mm. and then famine goes no one can stop famine and then it goes <laughs> clam I yeah i don't see what clam actually is yeah yeah exactly he's just gone come my yep. toupee says the thing that amazing that is the best line of the issue come yes. my toupee yeah yeah that is that's an exclamation well that and actually you know i would swear that Years ago, I looked at Rich Buckler's webpage, and he was very proud of his various influences. I want to say that his... I, I actually kind of admire the boldness of his design for death 
which is essentially just a blank faced nothing. Yeah, it, like, it's, it's a dude in a nappy, basically. Yeah. And, and it is. <laughs> and that's it. It is. It is a dude in a nappy. It's like Silver Surfer without the detail. Yeah. And. And I, part of me is like, I kind of like that in a sort of, oh, death is the absence of... Of anything, yeah. Anything, yeah. But of course, then we actually get the FF have to fight their... Oh um, the, their, their death doppelgangers, which yeah. apparently, which despite Marv Wolfman having the FF say in dialogue how capable they are, the humans are just defeated by a snowball, which you say is defeated by being thrown off a cliff. Yes. The Reed Richards is defeated by a snowfall. And yeah. the Doom Thing is defeated by being thrown into death, which causes them to short circuit. And because, again, the story is an amazingly rushed ending, that's the end of the story. Yeah. Basically, Reed's second explanation the ancient curse still works, just as famine feared it would, and just as I realized it must. Pestilence said it first, that a race mightier than his own drove the horseman off the earth millennia ago. When Famine said he wouldn't fall victim to the ancient curse, I realized that other race must have set some sort of protection device against the horsemen, should they dare return. We activated that protector when we battled the horsemen. What? Yeah, like... What What protector? What protector device? Yeah. How did the you activate protector device. It? Yeah, like, teleported what? them home again. Yeah, what? What, what yeah, is that protector it, device? It makes no sense. Here is a story where someone was like, oh, the Fantastic Four. Wouldn't it be great if we had them fight the four horsemen of the apocalypse? After all, there's four of them. And somebody was like, mm, you know, that is barely an idea, but I think we can fail to deliver on it. So <laughs> let's... We, we, we can make it happen. Also, I yeah. like that the, uh, the issue then ends with Ned's like Silver Surfer, and then issue four just has no Silver Surfer in it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, and then we move into, oh, the hate monger. Uh, a reprint of the hate monger story, which I have to say, when I was rereading it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember reading this for our little... Actually, that's the worst part. I found myself being like, shit, did we read this for the Baxter building? Did we somehow miss this issue? No, like, we did the hate monger. No, I know. I know we did. But that's the problem. I really had that moment of like, oh, yeah, right. Like, even Stan and Jack weren't quite able to knock that out of the park. Although... In a way, far more interesting than what came before it. So, yeah, I don't know. Giant Size FF number three was, to me, just a lousy, nonsensical, overwritten, just that issue stank up the joint. I I was not impressed with it at all, Graham. It, yeah, it's, it's my I, least I, favorite. I, 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 have, I have another least favorite. <laughs> I bet you do. I, I what It'll I be the one it. issue that I actually like. I'm sure of it. I, I don't oh, I think it is. That's I happen. would not be surprised if it's the one you, you actually like the best. But let's yeah. move on for now. So Giant <laughs> Size Fantastic Four number four, which is Mad Drugs the Multiple Man. Yes. By Len Wein, Chris Claremont, John Buscema, Chick Stone, and Joe Sinnott. Uh, as the title might suggest, it features the first appearance of Madrox the Multiple Man, or as I should say, the dearly departed Madrox the Multiple Man. Spoilers to everyone, he's just been killed off in the comics. 
not not this comic. This is where he first appears. No, no, no. Later in in comics, the, the um, yeah. death of the X. death of X or whatever. He's, it's he's, he's gone from uh, uh, death of X because I was going to make a joke about how all all nice things must end in X Men comics, but then they announced X Men Rebirth, and it's they seem to be upbeat about that. So who knows? Once you have your sacrificial sales lamp. Anyway, so the the but fascinating Cyclops, thing. Cyclops not the sacrificial sales lamp for death of X. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like any sales event has to have, at Marvel has to have a sacrificial lamp. It's, it, Who's going to die in it's it? It's Cyclops. Cyclops is the one who dies in Death of X. I, Graham, I'm just saying it doesn't I, necessarily... I, so where are you saying Madrox is? He, and also, didn't Cyclops already have, die? Or are you saying that this it, is the other death, Cyclops dies? No, Death of X is a flashback to explain how that Cyclops dies. Oh, because he doesn't actually die yeah, in Secret die, War. He dies off panel. And then this is the flashback to explain how he dies. Wow. Well, let yeah, me tell you. That's a, that's a comics work now, Jeff. Should you get back to 1975 when comics worked easier? Uh, yeah, although, again, do they? Because here's the thing about Mad Rocks, <laughs> the multiple man, the first appearance in Giant Size, Fantastic Four, is um, nobody can really decide with Mad Rocks what he can or can't do, what there is or isn't to worry about him, and what kind of threat he may or may not possess. Like, who knows? You know, the fact that he has... That I'm like, you've got a character who it goes on to become relatively well-defined in the Marvel mythos and is known for essentially becoming multiple copies of himself. And here, uh, he kind of has to be the dude who becomes multiple copies of himself, is also sort of the innocent who doesn't understand why he's being attacked, and his wacky-ass super suit that he's wearing is somehow draining all the power out of New York and is going to be causing huge amounts of problems because stuff's blacking out. Like, I just, I don't, wasn't there, was there a point where, I mean, honestly, the majority of the issue is Reed saying, Ben, just stop hitting him. And Ben being able to not live up to that very simple command, which I actually I kind of love that. Um, I I clearly have much fonder feelings about this issue than you do. I, it sounds like you do, Grant. Talk in, about in this. In that I like this. So here's my nostalgic moment. I this is that's for issue I read first when I was a small child because it was reprinted in a British annual at some point. Uh, that I had when I was a kid. This is one of the reasons why Madrox is one of my favorite X Men characters. Because really? I, rem I remember him from way back when. This outfit wow. in particular is, is has warm memories for me. Yeah. I have to say, I like the outfit. I don't necessarily know who designed it or whatever, but it's kind I'm of sort of a... Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of a fun costume. Yeah. It sort of, it works, you know? It's kind of... It's funny because the Madrox, I am... If someone says Madrox to me, I immediately think of the Peter David one from the X-Factor run. From the from his first X Factor run, I should say, the the sarcastic Joker. Yeah, uh, right. And that that this you know this Madrox is unrecognizable in that later incarnation <laughs> because this Madrox is literally the Why must I hurt? Yes. You, you talking words to me? Why yeah. must I hurt? Stop the pain. Again, it's the Star Trek thing of there's such a Charlie X vibe to yeah, it that's yes. just yes. blah. But I am interesting. So Why are lights going off? <laughs> Do not hurt <laughs> Madrox! <laughs> but despite that, 
they then like give him his flashback and it's like my parents died and so I worked on the farm including all the tractors and heavy machinery myself and had television so you'd think I might be slightly more socialized and or capable but apparently not why why New York dark why <laughs> another one who is different different like me maybe one who can help me I am Madrox Exactly. God that only knows how I fed myself on that you farm. You cannot hurt me. You can only die. <laughs> oh man, I do hope that when Doctor Who introduces like the kinder, gentler cousins to the Daleks, they're smart enough to get you to do them because you of totally Daleks, have the yelly sing songs. Fuck you. Daleks. Who cares? I, who cares? You're saying that on the internet about a doctor. I know. I know. It really is. Whatever, nerds. Like, just bring it out in the wrath on me. Since like on to your Fantastic Four podcast. <laughs> Clearly, I have the level of, like, self-awareness that'll, that allows me to create podcasts and be on the internet. Why hurt uh, Jeff? Yeah. <laughs> Leave Jeff alone. Anyway, but so, yes, Graham, I'm yes, glad that this issue has fun. Oh, okay, but uh, so here's one of the reasons I loved it as a kid and love it even more now. Madrox eventually is only defeated when Professor X shows up. Professor X is basically yeah. like, oh, I've known about Madrox all along. Cerebro told me he was here. There is uh, a page where Professor X uses his psychic powers to shut down Madrox's brain, and there is a four-panel sequence of Professor X using those powers that is... Yeah genuinely staggering yeah uh, i yeah. bet your butts that i'm going to put that in, that four panel sequence in the show notes because there has never in all of comics been a better sequence of professor x using his psychic powers because it's genuinely john basima and joseph it's showing professor x waggle his eyebrows silently <laughs> for four panels. or the side of his head it's great. The little wacko lines. It looks. It honestly looks as if Professor Head. Uh, Professor Head. There you go. Professor X's head is growing. But Graham, I'm sorry. The best part of this story is when Professor X is being lowered down by a quote-unquote vortex beam, which then suddenly cuts out oh, for oh. no reason, <laughs> and then they have to catch his ass. I adore that. It's so I good. really do. It's there like, is. here I come, I could land my helicopter, I'm going to float down, look at me floating down, look at me floating down, holy shit! I love it, I love it, and then when he lands, when the thing basically catches him and throws him in the chair, like, Professor X is so, like, that never happened. Like, there's nothing, no, he's, he's just like, like I'm fine. I appreciate the thought, Ben Grimm, and the helping yeah. hand. But come on, look at the bot, look, again, look at his, like, he's just like, that, no. Now like, me. You know what I mean? Like, like it's just be like, but anyway, Reed, let's talk about business. Yeah, totally. Totally. It's like, dude, you practically tumbled. Didn't you at least shit yourself? I have no idea what you're talking about. So listen, we gotta <laughs> this guy's like completely a mutant. It's amazing. Uh, it is amazing it's, it's, to oh, me the Professor X cameo in this. Is... It really makes the issue. It really genuinely does. Yeah. It's it's kind of generic apart from the fact that Ben Grimm is wearing sandals and a fur coat in the first just opening it pages. It's kind of generic up until Mr uh, until Professor X shows up. And when yeah. Professor X shows up, it becomes amazing. <laughs> it really is just that like wow. Wow, you guys. Wow. So I, I do have to give it up to, again, you can tell this is an issue that Chris Claremont uh, co-wrote in the sense that 
Jamie Madrox shows up and goddamned if Chris Claremont's not like, I'm going to show it's in a way it's kind of heartening when you see where Madrox starts highly uh, unbelievable though it is. You're like, wow, he really does. Like, I'm kind of like, oh, Professor X actually did something in the greater sense of Marvel continuity. Like he really did. He did end up helping Jamie. Jamie pops up as kind of a very sweet, kind of charming dude in Chris Claremont's X-Men for a while uh, until until it's time to move him along. Peter David really grabs the character and, and runs with him. Yeah, but, but, but yeah. Uh, he's, he shows up in Your Island issues. Like, yeah, like exactly. for a while, he shows up for, yeah. in Mirror Island. He, like, every he, time they cut to Mirror Island, it's like, and here's Jamie and right. whoever else happens to be there at the time. Yeah, it's usually Jamie. and Yeah, no, so it's very much kind of this thing of like, ah, they, you know. God and also, Chris let's be honest, we are overlooking his amazing appearance in the Fallen Angels series, which is oh, also yeah. genuinely another favorite of mine. <laughs> I guess I really do like Madrox because I also love you really do. Shit. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, there you go. Well, that that's Giant Size Fantastic Four number four, um, which is, again, just like an, all of these issues are kind of misfires in various ways. They all have things to recommend them, but none of them I think you could really point to and be like, that's a great comic. Oh, God, no. No, I mean, it. it, it uh, all of them, to lesser and greater degrees, are kind of like... It, you know, if one's being particularly, uh, it's kind of, uh, at best, it's serviceable hack work, you know, yeah. and at worst, it is dashed off money grab, you know, there, there's just not a lot of strength there. And again, it sort of points to a little bit of how the FF, you can, you can do an autopilot story on the FF, but honestly, it is so dull to the creators that they can't really join the dots, you know. Now, it could be that, that people are very much like between John Basima, who in theory, I mean, knows how to tell a story, but clearly this is not the kind of story that he's into. And Rich Buckler, who is kind of like, I have lots of things I want to do. Telling a story that makes sense maybe isn't as high up on the priorities as I would like. <laughs> You know, either you have a situation where the writers are so busy trying to play catch up to ex- to explain or wallpaper over the plot excesses. Because, again, these are being done in Marvel style. So a lot of the storytelling choices are really being made by the artists and the writers are having to, to improv and, and come up with stuff after the fact. It it you can sort of kind of do it. I mean, let's face it. That is basically the, the FF style under, under Kirby and Lee, but you just do not kind of get the same level of competence and charm as, as when, you know, Kirby's really in it and Lee's kind of, you know, got his back. The closest it comes to charm is issue two. Yeah, I think so. Which is is, is so genuinely charming for the majority of the issue. And then basically gets scared and goes back to formula. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say, I think that there's a certain degree of, and this is going to, this, this is, this is where the fight begins is I know that I find the King size annual FF number 11, um, and then the invaders by Roy Thomas and John Basima 
has and, and some Sam charms Granger. to me. Let's let's you know, name and say, yeah, you can definitely do see the Sam Granger influence. In yeah, that issue. yeah, because it's you definitely miss the Senate. Yeah, yeah, oh it, it, the, the inking yeah. is so much rougher, uh, and it's mm-hmm. funny because this is my least favorite of the issues. Yeah, that's kind of what I figured was like, oh, this is going to be so. I I think that actually, what's so funny is as a kid, I remember reading this issue and being really into it like every time i see that cover i'm like oh yeah oh yeah i remember this issue and then rereading it i was like oh that's it like there is there is not a lot here again there's a lot of one of the thing it it's it's roy thomas at his really close to peak so close to his roy thomas is the east not only do you have him trying to promote his beloved uh, Invaders title. Not only do you have time travel uh, so that the FF have to go back to uh, right a historical wrong, which they spent a lot of time talking about, but this may be the only sequence where I can think of where it is actually 17 pages before the story really gets going in part because Reed Richards has to figure out that he needs to get have a slide rule to figure out where he's supposed to go in time. Like, <laughs> you know, like it's really it's... like part of me is kind of like, oh, I appreciate the fact that this is a genuine math problem that he had to figure out and solve. But part of me is like 17 fucking pages. Well, really what's funny is the, the start of this issue is great because you get the. You know, it's the FF doing something in this case, like, you know, we're avoiding, like, we're training missiles, and then, you know, a training thing gone wrong. It's an action sequence to begin things, and then you get them interrupted by by Nazis, who just show up in the Baxter building and want to fight them. And Mm -hmm. that's a great story hook. It really is. For me. And that's Mm -hmm. really exciting, and it's a really good intro to the issue. But then, as you say, the Nazis are understandably dealt with very quickly but then you do have i mean it's what six pages of not even exposition but of of working shit out so that they can then go back in time to trace where the nazis came from and it it, the the momentum of the story just runs to a halt Mm -hmm. and doesn't Mm -hmm. really get started again for me at all afterwards because everything just seems so um forced when they go back in time, like of course they show up right beside the invaders, and then of course the invaders think they're inv- attacking, and of course mm-hmm. there's a fight, and it's just like, mm-hmm. oh, sure, it's, we're going through the motions. It's you know what I think is kind of fascinating about it too is is that there are some really weird choices by John Basima, who we've seen do you know other stories before. There's so much of I think perhaps because we've read up to issue 200 and we've really seen Sue's powers as the invisible woman grow to the point where she's, you know, one of the, one of the, I don't know if it's a subplot, but it's, it's more or less widely accepted that Sue at the very least is considered more powerful than Reed, whether he's depowered in part of the stories or not. And what I find fascinating here is how much John Basima has. Like at one point, she pulls the helmet off a Nazi and karate chops his neck. Which, and then uh, there's another point where she trips Bucky. Like the battle between the tri- Invisible yeah, Girl and Bucky. The invisible Girl. Yeah, 
is such a classic, like, loser versus loser. Who will not lose? You know, it's such, it's Who so appalling. surprisingly win? <laughs> exactly. Who will stumble into a victory? Oh, no, wait, not Bucky. So it's well, kind stumbles. of this, yeah, he does. But yeah, that's kind of where I was trying to be clever. But clearly, <laughs> not I was punching above that. my weight that Graham's like, let me come in and clean that up for you, soldier. I don't think you saw what you did there. Okay, see? Like this? Ah. Uh? Ah, uh, okay. Let's keep going. You're doing great, Jeff. Keep going. <laughs> Only two more hours. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I mean, it's weird to me that John Basima is kind of like, oh yeah, I'm drawing the FF again. Uh, let's see. What's my favorite issue? Thirteen, fourteen. I don't know. I'm gonna pick one of those, and I'm just really gonna restudy and see like what he does. Oh, right. The, the Human Torch, he's a character who pretty much, as long as anyone has a glass of water around, they can take him out. So we got to do that. And, I mean, part of the... You have a scene in which you've got a bunch of superheroes fighting in a small room, including two superheroes with the same power. And John Basima literally pays just as much attention to the Thing and the Human Torch fixing a water pipe that Reed has like broken open. You know what I mean? Like it's very strange. Like it'd be awesome if every superhero fight scene like actually followed with four panels of everyone like refixing everything yeah. up. And yeah, just kind of like we destroyed okay, that wall. Okay, you guys, get uh, lost piece it together. Come on, let's. Uh, here's a support beam. So uh, yeah, it's it's pretty underwhelming and. Uh, again, I it's oof, and it just does not end. the The thing that is well, it, it's funny you say that because the story literally does not end. It ends yeah. on cliffhanger. Yeah, it does. It it and it's so funny because again, I had that like oh, it moves right into two and one annual number two or whatever the hell it is, where the thing teams up, goes back in time, and teams up with the Liberty Legion to take care of the stuff that. That they didn't not do take this care time. of this time. Yeah, and part of me is kind of like, oh, that's a um, like I remember at the time thinking like, oh, this is why this issue is actually such a dull fart. Is that's where Thomas really brings it in? Because the fact is, and I remember this: the few appearances of Liberty Legion, you get the sense that Thomas is really into the Liberty Legion in a way that the Invaders. He kind of digs. He's but the Liberty Legion is is deep nerd for him. It's it's the one where he's like, Oh, I get to bring back Red Raven and team him up with Miss America and Popsicle Man or whatever it is, guy who can barely stretch guy, you know, and just really go to town with those. But I think if I if because clearly Graham did not jump into the, you know, Onto the torrents to find that issue. Neither of us were yeah, that really so I, motivated I have to, tell you, to wrap After up. finishing issue uh, annual eleven, my first thought was not, "I've got to find out how the story ends." Yeah, it's kind of the opposite. I more or less have to make a point not to find out how this story. Well, ends. I, I, I've, I'm sure I've read the the annual two. Actually, I know I've read annual two because I'm fairly sure it's an essential uh, Marvel two in one volume two. Ah, which that at one sense, point yeah. in my life, I I owned. Hmm. No longer. Tough, tough no luck, everyone longer. who wonders how it ends. But um, there, there's, it should, it really does feel such. As soon as they go back in time, it feels really generic. 
The heroes meet, they have a misunderstanding, they fight, they then team up, they go and meet the bad guys, the bad guys are Nazis. Oh look, they're in an underground castle lair. They fight mm-hmm. the underground castle lair. It's Baron Zemo. He gets adhesive X on his head because that's his secret origin, the end. Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah. shit, really? There's yeah. no surprises here. The biggest well, there's no surprise is... That um, yeah. Chima and Granger's combination at points looks like Gene Colon to me. Oh, interesting. That, that's, that was honestly the most interesting thing about this comic for me. For me, maybe it was the appearance of Baron Zemo, but some of it reminds reminded me more of the Kirby stuff that Kirby and Lee were doing when they brought back Captain America in his own title. You know, and then they start doing the flashbacks to the Red Skull and things. I don't remember who was inking him. I want to say it was like Chick Stone or something like that, and I could totally be wrong. But I think that, weirdly enough, because there's a lot of shields being thrown and things like that, the at least the stuff with Cap and Bucky, I I just I just enjoy looking at it. Like, I looking at some of the stuff there. But the fact is, you have, at this point, seven superheroes. There's not a single supervillain in this issue. You have Baron Zemo, whose superpower is is that he wears a mask, which proves to be a huge mistake, you know? And that is it. That is it. There is... So it, it, may, it really does make Giant Size FF number two seem like the Galactus saga in the sense of if you thought it was, you know, you were going to find yourself on the edge of your seat after you know, bet after Reed and Johnny take on a bunch of powerless American revolutionaries, wait until you see 11 superheroes pile onto a castle of, like, Nazis with no superpowers at all. But it's fun to see them beat up Nazis. Isn't that what it is? I guess. I mean, it's this weird, um, it's not fun. It's not a fun story. Yeah, it's it, even even for a sort of thing where you feel like Thomas is very much in his wheelhouse. And frankly, there at one point he even mentions like his Battle of Four Worlds or the World's War Three uh, when when Ben's looking and says like, "Isn't this a parallel Earthline?" And he's like, "No, no, no. This is this is this, this is our Earth that we're looking hours. at." Yeah, and I'm like, "Wow, who would have ever thought that the." utterly underwhelming World War Three storyline would have been fondly remembered by me at this point. Because I was like, boy, at least that had some stuff to it. It probably, and it, really, it did not. But, um, well, so, uh, but that being said, I think childhood nostalgia and some of the Basima artwork, it's it's not a total waste of time. Not, not to me. Like FF Annual number 12. Well, so. here's the funny thing. So FF Annual number 11 is my least favorite. FF Annual 12 <laughs> is, on every single respect, a worst comic. Yes. It's terrible. The end oh, it's so of the bad. Humans and the Fantastic Four, the story is called. It is by Marv Wolfman and Bob Hall and Keith Pollard and Bob Wyacek. And apparently Marie Severin. According to the internet. According to the internet. Oh, really? Um, did some inking and is uncredited. It's terrible. Possibly the most powerful story you'll read in this, the Marvel renaissance of comics, demands the splash page. That's a lie. This is atrocious. Yeah. 
I mean, it's really, really bad. genuinely stunningly bad. Uh, yeah. Also, at this point, we have moved into the era, and this will be reflected when we talk about we talk in the next episode about the mm-hmm. next batch of regular issues we read, where FF is being used to clean up cancelled books storylines, uh, which is a real it's a drag, Jeff. You know, uh, uh, let me tell you, I, it is a drag. I have to say. It employs the only bit of frisión to the issue for me because the uh, for those of us who don't know, and that includes essentially everyone, because nearly nobody read the uh, Inhumans solo title back during the seventies. Uh, the Inhumans have been um, uh, basically more or less knocked on their keister by Thraxton the Schemer, which is and the, this name. And I, one I of the things love is, the idea that he's called the schemer, and yeah. he's like, I guess I might as well become a bad guy then, because I'm called the fucking schemer. Uh, yeah, exactly. The one thing that I think is actually sort of clever about this that I'd be curious if it really was being played up in the Inhumans is when you see Thraxton the schemer, he is such a specific Kirby fourth world analog, and. I'm fascinated by how much that immediately shows up. And the way that the first half of the story is crafted, it is in which Thraxton ends up like having the FF and the Inhumans on the run and then basically gets, you know, Thraxton gets beaten by the FF in part because the all the amazing power that he had was being given to him by a mysterious dude who likes to stand with his hands behind his back uh, and has a, has a weird funky helmet on. You're like, Oh, okay. This is there to me. I'm like, I hate to say it, but part of me is like, I, in my love of, of analogs would have been entirely happy if this had been the FF and the inhumans fight basically for cheesy fourth world analogs, mm-hmm. which Unfortunately, it is sort of super low budget that you essentially have two. You have Thraxton the Schemer, who more or less is like if Calabac and Granny Goodness were sort of jammed into one person, you know? And... Uh, I, I, really? See, that's interesting because visually for me, he's High Father, but he's got red hair. Yeah. I'm just talking about like his overall vibe, which is okay. he's supposed to be a manipulator. I'm I'm kind of like no, maybe it's like Funky Flashman, like it's true. some he's, other he's like least manipulator manipulator. He's like go over there, look, I manipulated you. <laughs> exactly, Thurston the schemer ah! has once again schemed again. <laughs> done what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, so part of me is like, yeah, uh, but. And this is something that we are going to be returning to in another Baxter building episode. Believe me. Believe me. But there is the Sphinx who ends up being the dark side-ish baddie who has somehow managed to manipulate Thraxton the Schemer such that he... In what sense, Jeff? Because the Sphinx, I'm just going to say right now... Is the most loserish of loser villains. Oh, completely. He's horrible. He is the biggest failure of a dark side villain, but he's clearly in the dark side mold. He it, he actually is a weird the mini dress. That's that's the that? reason you're saying it. The fact that everyone keeps calling him Stoneface throughout 
also to me is a big thing. The fact that he's he's got like his he's got amorphous powers that he's a big schemer that he he has been manipulating everything from behind time. But is he and yet, a big schemer? Because he's not called the Sphinx the schemer. I mean, Thrax oh, really is, is, is really obviously well, Thraxton his schemerness. Clearly, it's clear that Thraxton was he was running on borrowed schemes. Jeff, which... I, I have to ask this: Are you calling him Thraxton to make fun? No, why? What's his fucking name? Thraxton, no T. Oh Jesus, I don't Thra- know. Thraxton, I mean... I, for some reason, Thraxton is a much funnier name. I honestly thought you were calling him that, like for joke. No, no, no. A Thraxton, Thraxon, I they're both dumb names. They're both terrible. Like Thraxon the Schemer. I, it just makes, you know, you don't even get this stupid, you know, uh, alliterative uh, symmetry that you used to get. Like, if he was called, like, I don't know, Straxton the Schemer, you're like, oh, okay. But Thraxon, like, why Thraxon? Because he Thraxes people? Like, you know... It just, it's just, it's just not a good name. I mean, there's nothing about Thraxen that is at all interesting once you get behind this idea that he's, like you said, High Father with red hair. Or oh, there, you there's, know, this... there's nothing about Thraxen or the Sphinx that is interesting in this. Everything oh, that yeah. is interesting about the story comes from the weirdness of it. Because this is on almost every level, an Ersatz Fantastic Four comic. Yeah, this is the strangest. Like of all, we've read. I mean, what, two hundred and fifteen Fantastic Four comics at this point? Two hundred and twenty. Yeah. Right. Well, yes. Yeah. yeah this yeah. is definitely the weirdest. It's down there. Part of it is, you know, it's interesting. While we were sort of talking about the the last run of Baxter building issues, um, one of one of the whatnots said uh, on the comments thread that uh, they actually liked Pablo's. Pablo Marcos's art, and I can't remember who was inking him, but you know those issues are before Senate. Senate takes a powder for a few issues yeah, and then yeah. comes back at 196 and powers through to 200. Those few issues, one of the things the guy, uh, the commenter says, and I'm so sorry I don't remember your name, uh, is is that they liked it because it gave it a Bronze Age feel, and. I think, uh, although I read into it, that idea that it's kind of, oh, t- the times have sort of kind of caught up with the characters in a way. They're facing kind of a new world. This just seems, this is just some really bad dashed off storytelling, some really bad choices. There's there's some All really, the... the art is really bad, and but the, there's also some really strange writing choices in there. Right. I mean, one of the things is actually I should point out that is is an amazingly long gong show cameo that goes yes! on for like yes! five pages, which has, you know, not just Chuck Barris, but like the rest of the regular judges, including, you know, Jamie Farr and Artie Johnson showing up. For I, I, reasons that... J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan, thank you. I could not all, remember All name. get named, like specifically yeah. named, because I've never seen the gong show, and yet I know all their names because... They're in a, I, I just checked. It's three pages. There's a three-page yep. Gong Show cameo. Is it okay? I guess it, that's. It just true. feels longer. It is. It three feels pages. so long. Well, because yeah, because I guess you're right. It shows they show up on that one thing where thing bursts through the wall, and they're like, "Huh?" And then they go on to give give the FF's appearance a six. Where oh yeah, which is again the little charming part where it's that this they've got a little entire chapter here that Marv Wolfman spends on a big FF in-joke where essentially 
Dio, Dino De Laurentiis, who redid King Kong in 78, here is, um, what's it, his name, is, Lorenzo? Uh, yeah, what is his, Mr. Lorenzo, but I don't think they say his first name, do they? You know, they, and there, but there's also don't. a special effects person, Luigi Cantaloupe. Cantaloupe, yeah, which is just, I mean, which is again, just, like um, all really kind of offensive. Again, very offensive. The and script, it's, it's a magnificent, is a perfect the way it is. The people, they go see my movie, they eat it up. The people, they will love them, I think. When pe- yes. when they hurt, people cry. I make sure they cry. I put onion smell in the soundtrack. <laughs> I mean, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's really? real funny. I mean, he is ri- he is riffing on some of this stuff there. The fact that, that Dino De Laurentiis, I think, actually did sound like he was pronouncing Kong Kong. But yeah, but some of those are actually thinly veiled. <laughs> no, I mean, even the fact that uh, I can't think of his name, but the guy who designed the robot, the, who gets, you know, turned into Luigi Cantaloupe here... Is isn't it what Carlos Romaldi or the guy who goes on to design ET later and therefore becomes incredibly well loved in the the community? I guess in that sense of like, in theory, I knew his name at one point and I was not. <laughs> so you essentially have the giant robot Kong who is the Think go on a rampage and Thing fights him. They stumble into. The Gong Show. The Gong Show ends up giving Thing versus Robot Thing a six, and the next panel has the caption. We'll tell you now that the winner was Annabelle and her singing appendix scar. So let's move on to where the real suspense is brewing. Considering how jammed with story the rest of the comic is, I'm like, that was an incredibly bad decision, storytelling wise. I'm All sort of. of it. It's a very bad decision. Well, but a lot of it is, uh, yeah. Hey, oh, so, here, here's my favorite part of the whole issue. I, I yes. actually was so weird that it made me stop when I was reading it. Sue yeah. manages to make the force shields around Atalan disappear because she can create force shields. Therefore, she can make anyone else's force shields go away. Yeah, what kind of bullshit was that? That was like, That's amazing. wow. Amazing. That, yeah, yeah. That, that really had one of those moments of like, huh? I mean, you know, I've given again. It's it's all it's all in how you do it. We have seen Kirby come up with things that are even more ridiculous. Manifest powers from the Human Torch that are barely related to the concept of fire in any way, and yet. I'm willing to give it to him in part because sort of where it falls, how it's done. But that was like, I just read it. I was like, that's bullshit. You know, and is that? Yeah. And then by the time you get to the Sphinx who uh, we're doing a terrible job um, summarizing the plot, but believe me, it wouldn't really Uh, help uh, you. Okay. So the plot is basically, Crystal comes to get Johnny because yeah. she and Lockjaw are the only two Inhumans that are free. Thraxon, the schemer, has imprisoned the Inhumans. She then, she and Johnny and Lockjaw confront Thraxon. He fights them off. They go and get the other Fantastic Four, rescuing them. I'm not even rescuing them, gathering them from the, they have just fought this giant thing robot. They then confront Thraxon. Thraxon's like, oh, just you wait. It's not me. There's another guy. This other guy is in space. 
the Inhumans have all been taken up there. It turns out shot into the space in a night in an enormous building that I swear to God is Bob Hall looking around his apartment trying to figure out a spaceship and and spotting a ridiculously kitschy uh, candle. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's a candle or it's a it's a uh, standing lamp. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Um, anyway, so they've gone into space. Uh, it turns out the Sphinx has got them. The Sphinx wants to use them to supercharge his powers so that he can brainwash all of humanity because he believes if he brainwashes all of humanity, he can find the missing part of his origin, which will allow him all power. All power, everyone. This is very important. But guess what? The Fantastic Four fight back while they are distracting the Sphinx by fighting him. Lockjaw frees Black Bolt. Black Bolt frees the rest of the humans. The end. Yeah. There you go. There's all... your plot synopsis, people. Yeah. I mean, it, it's... If you want to see... There's amazing sequences where spaceships are ripped open. There's no explosive decompression. You basically get people being punched out the walls into space and everyone else just standing around after the wall is open, being like, oh, ah. At one no, no, point, no, 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 Wolfman no. tries thing, to explain thing, it. Yeah, the thing does get blown through a wall, and everyone else is like, oh, hold your breath, guys. Yes. There's a lot of holding your breath. That That is the big problem in space, as far as Marv Wolfman is concerned, which um, uh, is an interesting theory. So the Sphinx is, uh, he, he is somewhere between, he's like, if you really are the sort of person that's like, I wish Darkseid was a lot more like Apocalypse, but somehow absolutely uninteresting in every it's possible like, way. Can Darkseid be more like Apocalypse and yet very boring? Yeah. There's also something that's kind of weird where uh, you can tell Marvel Wolfman's really into the origin of the Sphinx. Because every time the Sphinx shows up, <laughs> you get his fucking origin. This yes. is a guy. Spoilers, everyone. The Sphinx is going to show up in the next episode of Baxter Building. Wait to tell you who the fuck he is and how the fuck he got his power. He, everyone remembers the story of Moses and how Moses went to the, the Pharaoh and said, like, hey, God is awesome. And the Pharaoh was like, <laughs> No, no, you're wrong. God is not awesome. Here's my here's my sorcerer, and I he battles Moses and he loses. My staff tossed down turned into a serpent. Moses's did the same, but his serpent swallowed mine. Kind of all right. Defeat was not something Ramses took lightly. You failed me, wizard. The rebel fool was more powerful than you. Out of my sight forever. You are banished from Egypt. And then he said something like, so it is written, so it is done. There's nobody writing anything. So, no, so no, of it's, course... That's all written down. That's in the missing book of the Bible. Is it? That yeah. would be kind of awesome. The Sphinx. The Sphinx <laughs> book. <laughs> the origin of the Sphinx. Anyway, this is Marvel Wolfman being like, oh, I've thought of a really cool immortal... Uh, villain, and to be fair, thanks there, to the, there's, his there's... long run on Tomb of Dracula, you would think that Marv Wolfman—that's something that is in his wheelhouse. It's an origin that everyone knows. It rubs me the wrong way every time it pops up. Not just the fact that the Sphinx is like, "Let me tell you who I am and how I came to be." No, that's okay. No, seriously, shut up and sit down. But it's just the fact that that is this. It's just a. It's kind of a. I don't know. There's just this weird thing of like. Okay, so I, I I don't know I don't know where to go with this. Like it's very much a Moses actual figure in the Marvel universe. Like Moses, huh. he supposes his toes are roses. Moses supposes <laughs> erroneously. What next? 
<laughs> wow, Graham. Wow. I, honestly, the dad humor episode cannot, of the Baxter Building. I cannot go from anyone seeing Moses without thinking of that fucking song. Wow. That's hilarious. That's uh, too many viewings of Singing in the Rain as a kid. That's all I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's way too many. But uh, to return to our main point, the Sphinx. I have to say, as a guy who is a sucker for a good dark side analog, I mean, after all, I'm the person who really likes Thanos. And by the guy, I mean me and everyone else on the planet except Graham McMillan likes Thanos. <laughs> and yet the I Sphinx is... Thanos. Oh, please, Graham, it's all right. Is is <laughs> The Sphinx is a colossal failure in ways that you could actually pretty much... We could have spent the entire episode talking about... I think if it wasn't that he sucks so hard, you almost don't want to pay attention to him. I mean, well, I don't know. What is let's, it, Graham? let's be Why brutally he... honest. We're going to spend mm-hmm. far too much time talking about the Sphinx Nets episode. That's true. I'll save it for then. Maybe I'll come up with a really good, compelling reason as to why he sucks butt. But let me tell you, in case you were wondering, the Sphinx sucks some serious, serious butt. Whew. And I really did. If... I have for me FF annual number twelve is in competition with Giant Size FF number three for just being the worst comic. Just it's the worst. One of the things that it has going in its favor for that title is that unlike every other issue we're talking about in this run of of Giant Size specials, it looks terrible. It really does. It's awful. Visually, it is a. It's it's just. It's so incompatible with what the Fantastic Four has looked like up until this point, but also just pretty unimpressive in its own right, so that it just looks like a bad comic. It it visually reads poorly. And I do think it's interesting because part of me is like, maybe I would have liked it more if Rich Buckler had drawn it. And if it, uh, I mean, the plot couldn't have been any worse, but, you know, but yeah, it's, I, this is... I'm fascinated by FF Annual number 12 in a way that the shout-out to the Inhuman series makes a lot of sense because the Inhumans was a series that you would think was a no-brainer back then because they were really wildly popular. You've got some absolutely awesome Kirby designs, and then you put them in their own comic, and it's pretty terrible. And it's terrible in in ways that seem specific to some of the flaws in, I think, I don't, I don't want to say that they're flaws because I think Kirby knew what he was doing and he really, I don't think he necessarily had intended to have these characters scale up to become full-sized, you know, a comic book superhero team, really. Uh, But it's, there's just something about it where I'm like, oh yeah, this is this sort of points to the future where of not everyone can be John Basima or Rich Buckler. Like whether or not not everyone can be. You get to someone like George Perez who's able to take some of those influences and really work well with Joe Sinnott. But I think even if Sinnott was inking this, and admittedly, there's just bad, bad bad storytelling here there's just no real way of the artist had too many and too much to do with the plot too much was given too much plot couldn't cut anything tries to jam everything in and so you just have like there's panels that look like um 
essentially a club sandwich made out of faces. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> it's it's a really there's storytelling wise it is off, pacing wise mm-hmm. it is off. Uh, in terms of the actual style, it is far too busy. The inking doesn't know favors. I mean, it's just it's not a good looking comic. Yeah, it really isn't. Uh, but you know, then you've got FF thirteen, Fantastic Four King Size Annual number thirteen. Um, which, which has I don't even know. Here's the thing: it has no story title, but it has five chapter titles. Yes. If you go by the chapter titles. It's called Nightlife Encounter, Confrontation, Pursuit, and Battle. Right. So let's call it uh, Nightlife. Sure. Uh, Salva Shema Josen. It's most interesting creative credit. Francois Mouly does the colors. Oh wow! I totally skipped over that. That's genius. Wow. So, well, you know, for everyone who's like, I, I wish Francois Mouly worked on more Marvel titles. Here's one that she did. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, she doesn't. It's it's, it's entirely competent. You know, like, I mean, I, she doesn't I do anyone green. So, so yeah. what can you do? It's this is really funny because I don't know about you, but I read these annuals one after another. I have much warmer feelings towards 13 than it deserves because it is not issue 12. Yes. It is instead I... entirely competent. Yeah. You know, Joe Sinnott and Sal Bajima are an interesting combination. I, if mm-hmm. I were to, to to take two separately, I'd say that for Sal Bajima, I tend to think of him as a very angular artist. And I mm-hmm. think of it as working in curves. And so it's mm-hmm. really interesting to see the two combine. But it's it's a very it's a very Marvel comics of the nineteen seventies looking comic. You know what I, I find fascinating that I, I want to jump in on yeah. is is one of the things that really strikes me is is that we've seen Joe Sinnott and maybe maybe it's just how these things come together or work, but but what I find fascinating is I feel that Joe Sinnott is a guy who is notorious for doing another pass on the characters' faces. That yes. his, that a lot of the visual consistency of the FF comes from Sinnott being like, okay, I'm going to make these these characters look like these characters and look great. And I feel that you, in an in an issue drawn by Sal Basima, Sinnott actually touches up the faces less than yes. you see in some of the Joe, J- John Basima issues, which I find really fascinating. I don't know if that's like Sinnott trying to like not be as, you know, if he's going through, he has less time or he doesn't want to overwhelm people as much or he's working on something. I kind of think he actually likes the what Sal Basima does with the characters' faces that he's kind of like, I think it's definitely some of that because if you look at it, I think he definitely is doing another pass in the thing throughout the entire issue. Yeah, I think so as well. Because the thing you, you can see a very couple of pictures of the thing. Yeah, I agree. But apart from that, you look at like uh, Sue's face or Alicia's face, um, some of the stuff on going on with Johnny's face. Like I think I think Reed and Ben are getting the the Senate Passover. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I but I think that there's a lot of this stuff where I'm like, that is very very Basima, you know. Yeah. And, and I've got to say, I really like Basima Sue. Oh yeah, I do too. Absolutely, it's so funny. I there's something about the way that his Sue works that is somehow um, 
he 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 somehow gets her age right. I think like there's something about like the, I don't know. You know, there's kind of that this ongoing deal with Sue where she's supposed to be like this glamorous beauty, you know, and she kind of is just. I don't know, you know, she, but she always ends up looking to me like a suburban mom. And I feel like Basima's got a really good sense of how to draw a suburban mom that's, you know, basically is a figure that doesn't look glamorous, but has a lot of quote unquote natural beauty. Yeah. You know? I, I think that's, that's where I was going. I, I think she, I think he, he splits the difference. Mm -hmm. He manages mm -hmm. to make her look uh, beautiful, but not I wouldn't say not glamorous, which sounds weird. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, there, there's something about her where, and it's in particular shots, it's not always, but in particular shots, you're like, oh, I kind of see how Sue works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and also, I think I have to, I think it's worth pointing out that, uh, again, even though it's not a... Um, I, I I think I think I think Sal Basima because because Senate is can only draw so much. I think I think that Senate's got uh, that Basima has got a really good sense of body language for the FF too. You know, I mean, he's got a lot of it's a lot of the SF uh, SF FF style shtick. But like for example, in Chapter Two, when you've got the FF in sort of their man on the street things and the thing like splits his, you know coat you know basically angrily pointing at a at a snarky paper boy or something the the body language all kind of checks out it it's you know part of me is sort of like i wish that some of the john basima issues of ff had maybe been done by sal basima yeah frankly. exactly I think. It's, it's kind of surprising sal basima i think i've said this on, on the regular robot and a bunch it's someone yeah. i really appreciate now but didn't as a kid but you yeah. see things like this, and you're like, he's like, he gets stuff really good. Mm -hmm. there, yeah, when he when he's really on, does. he's really yeah. on. Yeah, he's really on. Now that 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 level of on is never going to be the sort of thing that uh, is is going to, you know, knock people over. Um, you know, in that it's not, but it's not terrifyingly different. But it's amazing to me how much um, it is basically the. I don't know. It just. It all works. Also, what I think is great about this particular story, and great, of course, should be in quotes, but I think I think FF13 also, in comparison with the super preachy Four Horsemen issue, where there's a point to be made and people are going to be pretentious about it, FF13 has a pretension to it. It's, it is a story with a message, and yet maybe because it's relatively it's not understated at all but it it is literally built into the fabric of the story it kind of it 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 grates less to me anyway you know well, part of that is in and i i'm saying this as a compliment and it's going to sound like an insult mm. but mantlo has a lot more of the hack about him mm -hmm. so that when he is doing a story that has a point i mean the story is ultimately uh about the uh, social underclass and, and mm -hmm. about people be, who are different and who are treated unfairly to the point where they would consider 
going into the Moment underground kingdom because at least they're they're all freaks together. When he does that story, it's still there's enough of the huckster in him mm-hmm. that he's like, okay, but I've got to make it work. Like yeah. it's not enough to be like, look at man's inhumanity to man. He's like, no, 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 no. I've got I've got to have the the fight scene. I've got to have like the the, the writing mob. I've got to have the action. I think I think part of it. Who knows? Maybe again because this is Marvel style. Uh, you, you know Sal, where he's he... like Sal Bashima? I, I think I think Bashuma doesn't really give it or he dramatizes those points, you know? I mean, it is absolutely something is um uh, I don't know, uh, blatantly um cheesy as basically the mole man crying at the end of the issue because he's going to, you know, have this culture taken away from him and all the art that he wanted to have uh in his civilization, but you know, like that, how do I put it? Those points are made so much more clearly than, you know, the last two panels where Reed's being like, and after all, who is truly the monster here? You know, like it just, it it is, it's kind of sweet. You actually, it's practically a Spidey super story in the sense of you get the reveal of Alicia. She turns around, she sculpts the Mole Man out of clay and he's super delighted and happy and it ends with people smiling and there's something that is uh, how do i put it un it unlike other star trek syndrome episodes where the idea is is like you you take a lot of revelry and the punching and the kicking and the you know people like being you know knocked over the head with one another and then you knock the head the uh, audience's head over with your social metaphor like this is just it's it's integrated it's just an it's it is it actually the the last page is the point you know and it, it i it's 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 not a good episode episode it's not a good issue of, of the book but it, it, I'm starting to think it may be the best, actually, now that the more that we're talking about it out loud, I'm like, yeah, it's kind of satisfying. It's sort of, it's one of the few where I'm like, unlike the, the rest of the issues where I'm like, okay, that's done. I'll never need to see that again. Part of me is like, man, I sort of wish that maybe if Mantlo and Sal Basima had had like the, if, if Marv Wolfman had left Fantastic Four at issue 200 and Mantlo and Basima had stepped in and done the next 15 issues of the of the FF, we would not be having the next episode of Baxter Building that we are going to have. <laughs> I you think, know? I, yeah, I think that's a very fair thing to say. It's actually super interesting. The more I think about it as well, the more I think this may be the, the best of the, the, the run that we've just talked about. Because it seems just the most Fantastic Four-ish. It's funny when, when I saw the, the first page and I saw the credits. Mm-hmm. I kind of relaxed. Do you know what I mean? You're like, it's Mantle and Salbashima. How right. bad can it be? Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And part of that is not just like, wow, the previous episode, the previous issue was bad. Right. But it's also just on a basic level. You know, they are both, We, you know, we, we talk about professionals and we talk about, you know, hacks. Mm-hmm. But Mantle, like, it's really rare that Mantle turns in something that is dull. And it's really well. Salbashima turns in something that is ugly. Yeah, it's true. You're going to get a a basic level of quality in there. (laughs) I agree. I think I think Mantlo has uh, 
he he has a very high level of competence. It's one of those things that's always kind of frustrating that, you know, I just noticed now that on that on that front page, and this shows you how unobservant that I am, like the the way that Sal Basima has the human torch drawing a big four in the sky with his flame yeah. is at such the it is at a completely different angle than the way that you see it in the book, you know? It's it's one of those deals where you kind of get the sense that maybe Sal Basima has not read as, as much of the FF and Kirby's FF as maybe a bunch of other artists have. And it's it's almost to everyone's benefit in a way. So I don't know. It's not just the Francois Mouly. It's definitely there's a certain ineffable. You know what else I liked? I actually also really liked uh, in the early pages. It's just a little throwaway thing, but... Alicia sculpts um, Agatha Harkness. He does a portrait of her and she's like beautiful and young and everyone else is kind of shocked. Like, oh, wow, Agatha Harkness was hot. And and I thought that that was, again, it's very sweet. You know, it, I love the fact that that is just a disposable character moment, which unlike the huge unnecessary Hollywood Dino De Laurentiis gong show cameo reads like an actual little character moment. Yeah, exactly. Kind of sweet, it, it feels, you know? it feels additive to the, to the, the, the characters, yeah. you know, it, yeah. and also to the sense of relationship and warmness between them. Yeah. And, and yeah. the, the, Hey, it's a runaway robot, but it feels like shtick. Yeah, and exactly. Weirdly mean spirited shtick. Oh, it is. It is definitely you know? mean spirited. And, and, and honestly, and maybe this is just me being a sap. Fantastic War shouldn't be mean, mean spirited. I feel like you can have them being curmudgeonly towards each other. I think if you mm-hmm. have a genuinely mean spirited Fantastic Four, something's gone wrong. Yeah, no, well, I, you know, A, a I agree with you. Uh, B, I just. I disagree let's with just you. Say, <laughs> no, 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 no. I was going to say that I don't necessarily know if I if I have as strong a stand against mean spirited FF. I'm just saying that it it was striking to me how much the warm spirited aspect of the FF has kind of not been as present. You know, it helps a lot that this story is a has a lot of, for lack of a better term, classic tropes to it. You know, and one of those classic tropes is, is that Alicia Masters is able basically has her own superpower, which is essentially just unrelenting decency. And and this is this is a story to the, where the superpower of psychic powers, which we've talked about before. Yes, which she clearly has a little bit of as well. But she usually, yeah, she breaks it in. I mean, it's so funny that real early on we joked about the whole idea that the Mole Man and Alicia and Matt Murdock are are all, you know, essentially some secret, you know, family. And the fact that they all pop up here in this comic, you know, uh, is, I thought, really funny. Especially since Daredevil is only there for a, a big cameo and then... And then gone. Which... I actually love that cameo as well because that cameo, for me, maybe I'm just a moron, but that cameo was the first moment where I was like, oh, I think I know what they're doing with this story. Mm. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like you see, you see the mole men coming to Alicia's apartment when they're not there, when she's not there. Yes. And then you see the mole men coming for Matt Murdock and he's not there. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was the moment where I was like, are they just going after blind characters? Right. 
Right. Yeah, and that is that is sort of clearly the case. I don't know. It just uh, it's it's uh, honestly it, it worked for me. It was definitely I I definitely do think that it was the the best of the batch, um, in such a minor way. In such a if only the rest of these disposable issues had been this competent and enjoyably disposable, you know. No, well, that's just I, it. Like. Uh... I would say Giant Size Superstars for issue one was competent and disposable. Yep. Agreed. Uh, issue it was probably two, my number two pick. Yeah, issue two, uh, kind of, I guess. Yeah, Cataclysm sure. had a lot going for it. It didn't. It yeah. really didn't come together, but had a lot going for it. Issue uh, Giant Size Death for issue three is kind of terrible. Oh, uh, kind issue of. Four is uh, issue four is is also kind of terrible. But like I said, as soon as Professor Xavier shows up. You get that eye wiggling scene. It just gets better, and then the FF Annual Eleven, the FF Annual Twelve are are, are not good. <laughs> you know, they're not good. Well, so, okay, so, I, so let's say thirteen, and then Giant Size Superstars one are are yeah. our favorites from this. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. And then yeah, probably the Giant Size FF number two, uh, and then everywhere throw the else on it's... the fire. Boy, for sure, and make sure to throw some kerosene on there to make sure they burn because. Yeah. Uh, hey, people, we're, we've actually done this one in under two hours, which is the first one we've done of these in the longest time under two hours. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, I'm yes. going to do some, some wrapping up stuff and see if we can actually get it out under two hours as well. Uh, first of all, we will be back very soon. In Well, we'll have to talk schedules, Jeff, but sooner than a month with the next back filter. <laughs> There may not there may not even be an absence. Well, there might be an absence of a week, but maybe not. I don't yes, know. We'll have we'll, to look. Pay yeah. attention to the website, folks. But we will be doing another Rack's Building very soon in which we will be covering uh, Fantastic Four issues 201 through 213. Or maybe 214, if I can convince Jeff to read an extra issue. In the meantime, I'm going to remind you that we are on the internet at waitwhatpodcasts.com where you'll find show notes for this episode and every single other episode of Baxter Building and Wait What. You'll also find occasional written posts by Jeff and I. I'm just admitting it, saying occasional there, Jeff, because we're really behind. Uh, and oh, more God. regular posts by Matt Terrell. We're also on Tumblr, waitwhatpods.tumblr.com, where you'll find random comic-related images from myself and Jeff where we'll just literally what we're reading, what we're finding amusing, occasionally some random things that are irritating us. That's what you'll find on there. We're on Twitter, at WaitWadPodcast. Uh, Jeff's on Twitter solo, at LazyBastid, at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. I'm on Twitter solo, at Graham M, at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. And we are also a Patreon-supported podcast. Baxter Building in particular exists because of the generosity and kindness of our Patreon supporters. And when I say Patreon, Jeff says... I say... I basically say everything that Graham just said, again, because I'm, like, uh, a little um, scattered that way. But I also make it a point to thank the kind crew of the American Ninth Art Studios, as well as Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy. We are especially grateful to both for their continuing support of this podcast. Uh, admittedly, we, we owe a debt to Empress Audrey for not crushing the galaxy in her mighty paw, but technically that's probably true of the American Ninth Art Studios as well. We're very grateful to them as well as all of our supporters on Patreon for exactly the reasons that uh, Graham says. So thank you. We will be back, maybe with a Baxter building, maybe with something else, next <laughs> week. 
You can tell we're flying by the seat of our fucking pants. And just, then some. Just go with us. It's been a crazy ass time recently. And next time, one way or another, you'll find out why it's been a crazy ass time. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Uh, normally, this is where I'd sing us out. But because it's Baxter Building, Jeff Lester, something he wants to say to you all. I do. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next time in the lobby of the Baxter Building.